0: Good morning, Cedar Mill. Good morning. Good morning. Um, My name is Ashley. For those of you who don't know me, I am the pastor of Global and Local Outreach here. And I absolutely love that hymn. Um, I love that song because it points us and it leads us really well into this new series that we're starting right now. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. And that is my prayer. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. That's my prayer for us this morning, that we would not Heed the riches, one of the, the verses in that song says, Riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always. That is my hope, that we would cling to that this morning as a church. And so as we make Jesus first in our hearts, for those of us that have not, maybe some of us have made Jesus first in our hearts a long time ago, but maybe we've put some other things before him. I hope that as we lean into this new series as a church, that our eyes would see what God has to reveal to us that our ears would be able to hear his word and that our hearts would treasure him above all else in this world. Today, as I said, we're launching into a new series in the book of Revelation, which is very intimidating. Um, I regret that I mentioned it to Dave, and now we're doing it, and now I feel intimidated by the book of Revelation, as I'm sure maybe some of us all do. It could be one of those books that is full, it is full of mystery, but also full of truth. And so I, I feel like sometimes we avoid those hard books of the Bible because we're afraid to jump into the reality of them, but we're going to jump into the reality of the book of Revelation. And our series is called Let Us Hear. As you see, the them is crossed out and you'll figure out why the them is crossed out later, but it's Let Us Hear. The title of this series comes from a common refrain that closes out each letter of the book, and that common refrain, if you've ever read the letters to the seven churches, is whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'll say that again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But before we get to the end, we have to start at the beginning. And the book of Revelation was given to John. Some say it is the, scholars would say some is, it's the uh, Apostle John, or maybe it was another John, a prophet. Um, But regardless of which John it was, he had a vision while he was on exile in Patmos And in this vision, he saw Jesus standing between seven lights. And the book of Revelation will explain to us what these seven lights are. It's full of symbolism. And so Rich Velotis, who I love, you've heard me quote him before. He's a pastor in New York. He says that uh, Revelation was written for three reasons. And other scholars would, um, agree with him in this, as I've read. One of the reasons is it's prophetic literature, literature. And it shows us not what the future, not only what the future holds, but who holds the future, right? That Jesus holds the future. It's a word of God that is spoken through a prophet to not just warn the church, but to comfort the church as well. The second reason Revelation was written is that it's apocalyptic literature. It reveals what was hidden before recounting, before the recounting of a symbolic vision. That vision reveals what was hidden through the prophet. And I believe that God has continued to reveal many things to us over the last three years through multiple ways. I mean, we have lived through and in a pandemic. We have lived through and in political unrest. We are living through and in a lot of injustice. And so those things, in those things, I would hope that as a church we could see that God is trying to show us and call us that our need for Jesus Christ is more profound than ever before. Would you agree? Our need for Jesus Christ is profound. He is our only Savior, the resurrected one, the one who died for our sins. And so for us as a church, you and me, Cedar Mill Bible Church, he wants to make himself known in profound ways that draws his sons and his daughters back to him. This is why we church, church, right? to be illuminating Jesus Christ so that people will look upon this body and the body of the church at large, ultimately seeing and proclaiming that there is no one greater than Jesus. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We no longer have to wonder what that mystery is because the mystery has been revealed. It is Jesus. He is making himself known in and through us to others. Number three, the reason why Revelation was written is repentance and resistance. Church, we are called to live holy lives. And as we read this scripture, we will be reminded that it's not just an individual call to live holy lives, but as a church, we are called to live holy lives collectively. And we live holy lives by repenting of our sins. Whenever we see sin in our life, we repent of it. And we repent and then we resist sin. We resist the temptation to go back to the way that we used to live, but we walk in a way that brings honor and glory to him. We tend to be skeptical and fearful of words like prophecy or apocalypse, unless we're watching some movie that involves zombies, um, because then we kind of disassociate ourselves from, from that word. But And that's for good reason, right? I mean, those terms, those things can be scary. They can bring fear upon us. But with Jesus, we don't have to be fearful of these things, right? He has promised us everything. We should be mindful that not everything is prophecy. And there are such a thing as false prophets, and God tells us about that. He specifically tells John in Revelation in the apocalypse that he speaks of that prophecy uh, can bring the church closer to God. It is sent to comfort and challenge, but we are to be mindful, and we'll see this in Ephesus, that there are people who are seeking to distort what prophecy means. So in other words, even though there are some things that are written that may sting for us in this message this morning, they are ultimately written for our good. And so I like to think of these letters, even though they're full of um, exhortation, full of rebuke, those are scary words, they're also full of love. God would not have written them to his churches if he did not love his church. So the book of Revelation and the seven letters written to the churches in Asia Minor, and I'm going to start out with the church of Ephesus. But the other churches are Smyrna, Pergamum, I probably said that wrong, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we'll spend um, Seven weeks going through these. David's gonna be up next week. Nick will do one. Jeremiah will do one. We'll go through these letters to these churches. Ultimately, the book of Revelation is a symbolic vision for every generation of the church. Even though it was written to churches in a specific time and place, they were going through specific things that we are not going to going through. It is still relevant for us today in our cultural context because it is an everlasting symbolic vision for every generation of God's church. So let's read Revelation two, one through seven together. It says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, You have forgotten the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this is the word of the Lord. We're going to take these seven scriptures and talk through them a couple verses at a time, starting with verses one through three. Um, I, I want to demystify the symbolism a little bit for you, and I'm hoping that you will go and just read the book of Revelation after this. Uh, in the days ahead that we would continue to familiarize ourselves with this powerful book, because we're not going to go through the entire book. We're just going to focus on the seven letters. So do read the entire book, and hopefully we'll circle back um, to that later. Chapter two starts us off with to the angel of the church of Ephesus. So who is this angel that is being referenced here. And the angel here is just simply a a pastor or a messenger of that church. It's not actually an angelic being. The stars in this verse are symbolic of the pastors. The seven lampstands refer to the the, the seven churches, and the seven is the number of Completion. It is the number of the Sabbath cycle in Jewish terms. Verses two and three go on to give Ephesus its recognition or its flowers, as the younger people say when somebody does good, we give them flowers, candies, recognition, we give them their props. Um, it goes on to give them the props for what they are doing well, right? They were hardworking, scripture says. They were persevering. They had no tolerance for wickedness or false prophets or apostles, and they endured the hardships and had not grown weary. My goodness, may we be that church. May we not grow weary in this season. So there was a lot going well for Ephesus. There was also a lot going on in the city of Ephesus. There are some things that characterized Ephesus. One was its size. Ephesus was the largest city in the Roman province of Asia Minor, and it was actually a, a stop along the way as you would travel this uh, kind of circle circle or um, diagonal line around to the churches, Ephesus was one of the first stops that you would would make. It was a commercial center. It was excellent for its harbor. There was, everybody was coming in there. It was a free city which allowed it to have local government and it had the freedom to move its resources and it had no garrison from Roman soldiers. It also had the Temple of Artemis, which was a Greek goddess. Um, It was Diana in Latin terms. And this goddess, they would make little shrines to it. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. It was a big deal. Uh, The goddess of Artemis was there, and there was prostitution. There was cults. There was a lot of things going on. It was immoral. It was also a multicultural city because of the port, right? Everybody was coming there. Everybody was selling goods because of the natural harbor. Ephesus was a multicultural city. So there were people from all over, religions from all over. The last thing that characterized Ephesus, and this is probably one of the most important, was that revival was happening there. People were coming to know Jesus in radical ways because Paul was there, others were there, sharing the gospel of Jesus. The proclamation of the word was going out and people were responding in crazy ways. One of the ways that they were responding once they received the gospel, the new Christians would burn all their books that represented past pagan beliefs. They got rid of all those things that would enslave them to the world. They burned what would be today millions of dollars worth of books. So this helps bring clarity to the power of the church because they loved Jesus so much. They were proclaiming their gospel in radical ways and they were speaking out for Jesus Christ. In Acts 19, we find out that God is doing extraordinary things. So what I mentioned can be found in Acts 19. A number who had practiced sorcery, it says, were burning their scrolls and burning their books publicly. And they calculated the value of those scrolls, and it was a great number. But somehow, even though they were doing a lot of things right, they were giving up their lives, they were repenting, it would happen that the church in Ephesus would ultimately forget their first love. Verses 4 and 5 say, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So what were they doing? One commentator said that Christians in Ephesus were now second generation of believers. The word had gone out, people had believed, they were raising their families in the truth of God, they had retained the purity of doctrine and life, they had maintained a high level of service, but however, they were lacking a deep devotion to Jesus. So let's talk about it. What does forgetting our first love look like? Forgetting your first love looks like some of these things, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but fear, idolatry, confusion. That's what forgetting your first love can look like. And all of this can be seen in in Acts 19. So fear. I don't know if you all know this, But Jesus, when you first come to know Him, He interrupts your life. Would you say that to be true? Jesus will interrupt your life. And because He interrupts your life, there are things that maybe we once held to or we once want to hold on to that He will ask us to lay aside, and that makes us uncomfortable but yet he still calls us to do that. So if you're wanting to walk with Jesus, expect that he will interrupt your ordinary way of life to give you something more. Acts 19.23 says this, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way is what is referenced to Jesus' followers. And the disturbance was caused because Paul and all of his sharing of the gospel and all the believers of laying down some of the things that they were asking them to lay down had interrupted the way of, for people there to make their livelihood because they sold little statues of Artemis the goddess. So their livelihood was being disrupted, which caused fear. And this leads to idolatry, right? So they were worshiping Artemis. They were creating uh, idols out of this, worshiping this god, but also worshiping money, worshiping their livelihood. And I think we can find ourselves in those dangers as well. We don't want God to interrupt our life. Money does become an idol, Our picket fence realities become an idol. Our comfort becomes an idol. We give in to fear and we neglect our first love. How many of you have ever been in love before? I want to see more hands than that. Some of you are married. uh, So, okay, there we go. You can be in like, but you know what love feels like. You know, the first time you fall in love with someone and you get butterflies and you just do anything you know you might write them letters every day not that anybody writes letters anymore but maybe you do you write letters there's something about a handwritten note which is so profound about some of these because these were handwritten letters people weren't texting things they took time to write to one another So you love someone, you wake up, you think about that person, you get excited. When you first came to know Jesus, how many of you went and told somebody about Jesus? You fell in love with Jesus, you told somebody about Jesus, you wanted them to know Jesus, right? When we neglect our first love, what happens? The notes stop, the text stop, the excitement about telling somebody about Jesus stops. This was happening in Ephesus, because of all of this, the other thing that comes in is confusion. You know, in Acts nineteen thirty two, it says the assembly after all of this that was happening. You know, there were um, the people who were making the idols, the silversmiths. I think that's what they were calling them. You know, they were disrupted and they were going around in the city. They were causing confusion, and they went into the town square and they had an uproar. Scripture says it was a riot. People were losing their mind. Confusion was happening. In verse nineteen thirty-two in Acts, this, it says the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. They were just there talking, spewing thoughts in the middle of chaos. And confusion is important because I feel like confusion has entered into churches today. It's entered into our church in some ways. It's entered into our lives, particularly over the last three years. Some of us shout at the top of our lungs and we don't know what we're saying. We align ourselves with this political party or that political party and we don't know what we're saying. We're confusing the gospel of Jesus We're letting confusion enter into our church and enter into our lives that is interrupting our relationship with Jesus. And I want to say that confusion has no place in our churches. When we walk around confused, we take our eyes off of Jesus and that becomes a distraction for other people. We need to get rid of confusion in our church today. So these are some of the ways that forgetting our first love manifested itself in Ephesus, but it also manifests itself in in us as well. And I'm sure that as you're sitting there, you can probably think of other ways that neglecting your first love manifests itself. You can probably think of ways that neglecting your husband or your wife or your kids and the love you have for them has manifested itself in your family. So here are two things that we forget that I think are of the utmost importance when the church forgets its first love. The first thing is the two greatest commandments. You all are familiar with those, but I'm going to read them anyway. It says... In Matthew 22, 37 through 40, that Jesus replied, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. To love God and to love our neighbor is our chief responsibility in this world. And it's from that love of God that everything else flows. It's from the love of God that you would find the energy and the wisdom and the fire to love your neighbor, to love your family, to use your gifts and talents for him. The second is the Great Commission. We forget the Great Commission when we forget our first love. And the Great Commission says this, is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, I have been reading some Barna reports lately. I read this a few months ago, and it completely baffled me. But it's true when you think about it. Something that Barna found out recently was that half of U.S. churchgoers either don't know the Great Commission or are unfamiliar with it. That's shocking to me. It should be shocking to you. And maybe some of you are sitting here and can't really say what the Great Commission is, and that's not your fault. It's really our fault as the church that we haven't been communicating what the Great Commission is. Because when we neglect love for Jesus, we neglect the Great Commission, which is the church's calling. The church, our church, must be about going and making disciples. Not disciples of ourselves, but disciples of Jesus. If we lose sight of the Great Commission, we lose sight of who we are meant to be. And Cedar Mill Bible Church, I don't know if you know this, if you're new, you probably don't know this, was founded because we had a heart and a love for Jesus, so much so that we wanted to go out into the world, all over the world, to spread the gospel of Jesus, to build churches. We have missionaries who are doing that. We have local and global outreach leaders who are doing that work. And this is sparked by a love for God, but let's not let that love die. Let's not let the first love of Jesus die because once it does, there is no becoming like Jesus and making him known. We just come and we sit in these pews and we do nothing. And it has to be more than that. The gospel, our love for Jesus has to mean more than that. The fulfillment of the great commissions comes from a deep, compelling love for Jesus. Are you being compelled by the love of Jesus this morning. The words I love you mean nothing if they don't manifest through loving acts. You can say I love you all day long. You can say you love the church all day long. You can say you love Jesus all day long, but if you are not living your life for him, if you are not proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed, then that love needs to be challenged. And Jesus did this himself with Peter. We remember the scripture when he was rebuking Peter and calling Peter back to himself. He asked Peter three times, do you love me, Peter? And Peter's like, oh, yeah, I do. I do. And ultimately, Jesus is like, well, if you do, feed my sheep. Put your mouth where your money is, so to speak. Let's be about that. We can be about all the right orthodoxy in the world, which is right doctrine. We can have the right orthopraxy, which is right action. But it means nothing if Christ is not living in our hearts. It means absolutely nothing. So let's not become a dead church. Let's become a church that is full of life, that's reaching out into our world. In calling Ephesian believers to repentance, Christ was asking them to change their attitude as well as their affections. Let's reorder our affections, just like Jesus was calling the church in Ephesus to do. They were not to simply continue serving, but they were to live their life holistically for Jesus. Or the word was, I will remove that light. I will remove that lamp from the lampstand. And here's the question for us today. Is it possible that some of the trouble that we're seeing in our city right now, let's think about Portland, let's think about the greater metro area, Portland, Beaverton, Hillsboro, Vancouver. Is it possible that some of the trouble that we're seeing right now in our cities is because, isn't because of unbelievers, but because we the church have dimmed our light? we have neglected to fan into flame the gifts and the good news that God has so graciously given us to share. When's the last time you went downtown and shared the gospel with someone? I hadn't planned to say this. When's the last time you went to Portland and shared the gospel with someone? Ask yourself that question. I'm not looking for an answer. When's the last time you shared the gospel with a neighbor, with that grocery store clerk? When's the last time you offered to take somebody out to coffee and talk to them about not your political viewpoints, but Jesus Christ? When was the last time? I'll tell you when the last time for me, I haven't done it. So there's that. That's a confession. I haven't done it. That's my point. Let's reorder our affections. So verse 7 says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As I mentioned before, each letter closes with this refrain. And the other letters you'll hear also close with this. And he said to them, he who overcomes, or them who overcomes, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. The tree of life was first mentioned in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. It later reappears in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22, 2. It says, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the rivers to the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, 2. Fruitful is what we are called to be now, and it's what we will be then. The church is called to be fruitful. What does it say in Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply. A lot of times we think of that as just, oh, we're supposed to have lots of babies. Could be, that is true. That is part of being fruitful. But it's also calling us to bear spiritual fruit. You can't neglect bearing spiritual fruit. Be fruitful and multiply. Not just as individuals, but as the church. What I don't want us to do is walk away from this feeling discouraged. I really don't, because it's not meant for that. God gave this letter to the church in Ephesus because he knew that they were capable of so much more. And because he loved them. And that's why he also gave it to us, the church, because he knows that we're capable of so much more and because he loves us and he desires to do great things in and through his church, big C. And I know that he desires to do great things in and through this church, Cedar Mill Bible Church, amen? He desires to do great things in and through this church. He desires that we would revere and love him with all of our hearts. He desires that we would be that bright light to the city, that it would burn bright enough, shining the way, not to us, but to ultimately Jesus Christ, our only hope, our only Savior. That's what the church is for. As the worship team makes its way back up, I didn't know how long I was going to go this morning. I I really didn't. Um, But as the worship team makes its way back up, there's a new song that we're going to sing today, and some of you may be familiar with it, and some of you probably aren't. But it's been on my heart for a few weeks now, and I've been praying I've been praying this song for myself and for our church, and as we sing these powerful words, I want us to be praying these words. Right? Worship is a form of prayer. It's it's um, it's honoring God. It's being thankful, but it's also praying to God. So as we sing this song, you know some of the lyrics to it is for our hearts that burn with holy fear. I want that to be our prayer. I want it to be our prayer that our faith would be purified by refiner's fire, that God would strengthen what remains and build up on that. God is doing something new in this season, something powerful in and through our church. So we, the church that bears his light, lamp aflame, a city bright. King and kingdom come is what we pray. That's what I want us to pray as we sing this song. May we make this song our prayer today and in the days ahead. May we as Cedar Mill Bible Church never forget our first love.